This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Claire Nichols, and this is The Book Show, where we're kicking things off with Colson Whitehead and his ultra cool crime caper. Colson Whitehead is the author of nine books, including The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys. And right now, he's really a man of the moment. Uh, since we last spoke, he's won a second Pulitzer Prize for fiction. He's seen The Underground Railroad transformed into a TV series. And he's released a new book, A Crime Caper, set in 1960s Harlem. Colson Whitehead, welcome back to the book show. Hey, how do you do? I'm really well. Two Pulitzer Prizes. Congratulations. Uh, does it change you? No, I still put my pants on uh, one depressed leg at the time. You know, uh, <laughs> when I, you know, we heard about the Nickel Boys winning. It was in the middle of the pandemic. Um, I was getting my blood tested for antibodies and then my phone started blowing up. And um, you know, after about 10 minutes, it was like, we're still in, in, in an emergency. So, uh, uh, so, so the world, the world quickly uh, reminded me that um, there's sort of bigger concerns, like keeping my family safe and being healthy. But yeah, it's pretty wild, obviously, and um, I'm really glad that people liked those last two books. Oh, I mean, the Nickel Boys was just amazing. Last time I asked you about being a Pulitzer Prize winner and how it affected you in the writing room, you were extremely cool about it, and you said, "Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't." Now you've got two Pulitzer prizes under your belt. Do you, I mean? When you sit in that room, do you go, oh, I am Colson Whitehead, the Pulitzer Prize winner, sitting down to write a novel? No, I mean, um, you know, the work is, whether it goes well or your last book uh, didn't do so well, uh, it's always hard. So I'm always a pretty tough critic of my own of my own work. And so I'm busy living up to my own expectations, not other people's expectations. So um, I was lucky that I had, you know, three quarters of a book done when we heard about the Nickel Boys winning. And uh, the next day, I just got back to work and wrote, you know, another page. So, um, you know, you just keep doing the work. That's the most important thing, uh, whether things are going well or not so well. Um, is this paragraph working? Is this sentence working? Is this idea pretty stupid? You know, all that sort of anxiety that I have on my generate on my own, hopefully is good quality control. And what about when the world outside your door is pretty scary. You're living through a pandemic and all the worries that come with that. Does that, does any of that come into the writing room with you? No, you know, I was just stuck in my house. So I just worked. I had nothing else to do. Um, my attention span was shot for, uh, you know, pleasure reading. So all I could do was work on my books and then unwind with some uh, Pinot Noir and television at night. So that's, that's how I got through lockdown. Um, this new book is called Harlem Shuffle. It's a crime story. It's a heist story. Why tell this particular story? Um, really, I just I grew up watching a lot of TV, and some of my, my favorite memories of a kid are just sort of laying on the living room couch watching uh, Saturday afternoon movies. And I remember seeing things like uh, Dog Day Afternoon, Sidney Lumet's uh, great film about a bank robbery gone, gone wrong. But taking a Pelham one two three, the original, where some uh, some criminals hijack a, a subway car and hold it for ransom. So those heist, you know, the heist movies have always been uh, part of my pop culture diet. So one day, I was in a car with my wife and just was, was just thinking how much I loved Ocean's Eleven and how fun I must have had doing it. And I asked myself, can I do a heist novel? And you know, I'm always I'm always give myself permission. Can I do a zombie novel? And that became zone one. Can I write a uh, coming of age novel when I hate teenagers being a teenager and coming of age novels? And the answer was yes. And that became Sag Harbor. So in this case, I gave myself permission to do a heist book and um, started planning. Heist movies are one thing. Heist books are, are something else. Did you have a lot of inspiration to work from in that field? Well, I, I, um, I started, you know, for me, it is a, a film genre. And so I was like, oh, should I, you know, see what's doing in the crime genre these days? It's <laughs> been a while since I've read uh, some crime novels. 
And I quickly realized I didn't care about detectives or cops. I really just cared about sociopathic criminals. Um, so uh, in addition to going back to the classic films like uh, The Outfit, Charlie Vac, these sort of lo-fi, low-technology heist movies, I went to Richard Starp, uh, pseudonym of Donald Westlake, and he has 25 novels about a sociopathic uh, criminal named Parker. He's very deadpan. Um, uh, and, you know, he always plans these great jobs and then things go wrong because there's that human element of the crew. Um, the more people you bring in, the more their frailties come in and, uh, and ruin, the, ruin the scene. Uh, Chester Hines, uh, African-American uh, crime novels from the 50s and 60s, uh, presents a psychopathic Harlem landscape. Everyone is a con man or being conned. And um, uh, that was good training. And then finally, Patricia Highsmith and her, her Ripley novels. You know, the hero or anti-hero in those books is someone who, he's a murderer, <laughs> a forger, a criminal uh, of all, you know, all, all sorts. And he sometimes admits to himself that he's a murderer, sometimes not. Um, he rejects his queerness, his, his dark side, and then sometimes embraces it. And so Ray Carney, the protagonist of my book, um, comes from a family of criminals, and he's been rejecting his, his own heritage. And part of the front of the book is him accepting, rejecting, embracing uh, that dark side of him. And so Ripley, Ripley's um, fractured self became a good model for, for, for Carney. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy because he likes to tell himself he's risen above where he's come from. He's risen above his dad, the criminal. He's a good guy. He does a little bit of crime, but not so much. I mean, this is really interesting, this kind of self-justification that he has, right? Sure. He's not, you know, he runs a uh, furniture store and sells used uh, furniture also on the side in a small corner. And then also some used appliances. And his cousin, Freddie, sort of a, a petty crook. Um, brings in jewelry that's stolen, and he uh, has some contacts. So he's mostly a legit businessman, but has a sideline. And part of the novel is tracing his embrace of his criminal side. So he starts off small time and then becomes more of a crook as he uh, accepts that part of himself. Mm. This novel is set in Harlem in New York City. Uh, can you tell me about the importance of this place in your own life? Well, I, I mean, when I was a, a tiny kid, um, until I was about five, we lived on 139th and Broadway. So my first New York is a memory of a early 70s, dirty, um, <laughs> it's very depressing uh, Harlem. And of course, that's the city I grew up in. We moved around a lot, but um, I keep coming to New York as a, um, a subject to write about. It's given me so much of my personality and uh, subject matter. It's fed me creatively. So whether it's in a nonfiction book like The Colossus of New York, which I wrote 18 years ago after 9-11, a book of essays, or Zone One, my zombie novel that takes place in a ruined New York, or this book, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out different angles to talk about uh, the city. So, um, so that's one thing. And then secondarily, it's my parents' New York. They were young newlyweds in the early 60s. And it's fun to sort of imagine uh, what the city was like for them. I would do research and, um, you know, I found out about the Hotel Teresa, which was a famous hotel in Harlem. And on the uh, first floor, there was a chock full of nuts, which was a coffee chain. So I feel very proud of doing all this research. And I would tell my mom about it and she'd go, oh yeah, that chock full of nuts. I ate there every day for breakfast. You know, um, I did research about Blumstein's, which was a big department store. I told my mom, she's like, oh, yeah, your, your dad worked there, you know, <laughs> two summers, like Ray Carney. I've already written this, these Carney bits about Blumstein's. And so, um, one, I should have just asked my mother what it was like. But, but two, it is, it is nice to sort of, um, you know, imagine what it was like as a, uh, a young couple in Harlem at that time. Yeah, what I like about the way you've painted this neighbourhood is it seems that behind every door of a home or a business, there's a story and there's a secret. Yeah, as he gets a, a, you know, starts an association with different underworld types or crooked cops and they show him what the, what the city actually is, 
he learns that, oh, the stationery store across the street is actually a front for a gambling ring. Uh, the bakery has a craps game in the back. So, you know, you pass the city every day and there's all these different secrets, um, which is also true for even non-criminals as well. You know, you walk down an old brownstone and so many different generations live there. Harlem uh, has been a majority black for the last hundred years or the last 80 years, but it was the home of a lot of the first home in the city of a lot of Italian, German, Irish immigrants who came, uh, entered the middle class, moved to a better neighborhood. And there's this churn um, in the population behind these buildings. And there have been so many different generations sort of hustling, uh, even behind the most innocent facades. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the host Hotel Teresa. It had the nickname of the Waldorf of Harlem. Can you tell me a bit more about this place and its um, really important role in history? I never heard of it until I started doing the research. Um, and then, of course, I found out it's uh, uh, you know great legacy. So it was a, a whites-only hotel to about the 30s or 40s, and then it desegregated. And it was the tallest building in Harlem. And you can see the Empire State Building, George Washington Bridge, these various uh, landmarks. Uh, they had a ballroom on the top floor, various restaurants, a uh, barbershop. And um, if you're a famous uh, uh, athlete, you'd stay there, musician like Billie Holiday, Billy Eckstein, Cab Calloway. Some of them kept regular apartments there. In the early 60s, uh, Castro you know, did a tour and stayed there. JFK, you know, did some meet and greets outside of it. So it was a very famous place. And whenever a um, a big musician was coming, to, would coming would come to town, uh, the newspapers would be tipped off, and there would be this big sort of paparazzi huddle as uh, the musician, musicians stepped off their tour bus. Um, now, of course, it's gone the way of all flesh, and it's now a uh, office tower, you know, and the. Uh, the chalk full of nuts is a white castle. I'm not sure if you have white castles, but we it's don't. a pretty grungy uh, hamburger chain. <laughs> There's no chalk full of nuts. So, um, you know, part of the book is also that, the, the, the changing neighborhoods and uh, the replacement of uh, these landmarks with the latest shabby version. So at the start of the book, the crew is planning a heist at the Hotel Teresa. Um, Ray's cousin Freddie is part of that crew, but he's got Ray involved. Ray is going to be the fence for this operation. Can you explain what a fence is? A fence is the person who uh, is a sort of middleman. middleman. So uh, uh, you, you steal a diamond necklace. You're not the person who you know, brings it back into the international jewellery trade. There's a fence who has contacts in the... Um, uh, with jewels around the world or local jewelers. So he's the middleman. And I, I, I decided to make the protagonist a fence because in heist movies, the crew will do all the work. They'll steal $2 million in gems. They hustle. They pull it off. Half the crew is like captured by the cops and it's terrible. And then they go to the fence and he looks at the, at the, the take and says, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar. And I'm always like, no, that's like the worst thing. Um, it's such an indignity. They do all the work and then this guy gets all the spoils. So um, uh, I hated the fence so much in all these heist movies that I decided to make him the protagonist. Why? Why make a protagonist of a person that you hate? <laughs> well, this is who are they? Who are they? You know, they, um, they don't do all the legwork. They have these contacts, shadowy contacts. In some ways, you know, they're sort of more interesting than the people who execute the job because they... Uh, they're in the business all the time and are maintaining all these networks. So I didn't know much about fences and um, it seemed like a nice opportunity to unpack a character. And I hadn't seen a lot of stories about fences. So it's sort of material just sitting there. Mm. Um, as you've uh, already hinted, um, the book follows Ray's kind of uh, entry deeper and deeper into the crime world. It opens in 1959. We moved to 1961, then 1964. How does his view change about being a good guy or being a little bit crooked? Well, you know, I started with one heist, but I found him so interesting. I kept coming up with different capers for him to be involved in. And so instead of it taking place just in 1964, uh, after the 1964 race riots in New York City, we see him in 1959 and 61 and 64. And each chapter is a, uh, 
novella length snapshot of, of who he is. He starts off um, as a baby fence and starts taking on uh, more of the trade. He, uh, his story is taking off. He's becoming a father again. And it seemed like by picking these, these three different moments in his life, we could see his progression, his embrace of his dark side, his rejection. Um, his wife is working and has a fine job, so he doesn't actually have to do this to make money. So what, what, what's the allure? What uh, secret need is he feeding um, by becoming more and more of a criminal when he has a successful um, Harlan businessman front? I, I kept wondering that um, because obviously his dad was a criminal, so you could say it's in the family, but a lot of it seems to come from this cousin, Freddie, right? Like they grew up together and Freddie would say to Ray, let's jump off this pier into the river. You know, it's really scary. And Ray would say, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And then he'd do it. I mean, he's pretty easily led astray by Freddie, isn't he? He is the, the sensible one. Um, and he always says yes. And he, he knows better but he does it anyway. So when they're both kids, they're this you know, little duo um, having various shenanigans around the city. Um, it's not so amusing when they're older and, and uh, Carney has a family, he has to provide for, and Freddie keeps on that sort of adolescent uh, track of, of never growing up. Um, so why, what is, what is their connection? Um, and if you ever had somebody who, uh, you allow to lead you astray, I think you'll understand uh, the allure of someone like Freddie. You mentioned the riots of 1964. So um, in the last portion of this book, we're there and there are these riots happening in Harlem and it happens after police a police officer shoots an unarmed man. This was a real event. And to read it, Colson Whitehead was depressingly familiar, the story of a police officer shooting an unarmed black man. Sure. I mean, I... Um, was trying to pick moments of New York City history where the robbers could exploit what was happening in the city for their own end. So like a riot or the blackout of 77. And they ended up picking the riot of 64 and then chose to write, set the, set the, the section in the aftermath of the riot because they didn't want to exploit uh, what actually happened, um, which is all too familiar. And then, of course, I, I wrote this, I wrote that section uh, finished last May and that two Mays ago. And the next day, Minneapolis erupted because George Floyd had been murdered and a new round of protests had begun. So I wasn't being particularly prescient. You know, if you write about uh, terrible incidents, uh, police brutality, if you wait a month, uh, it'll happen again. And that's been the future of, you know, of my life, uh, the last 50 years of growing up in New York City. And for someone like my mother, who can remember the police riots, the, the riots of 1940 and 64. Um, she's familiar with, you know, having this conversation about police brutality because of a big event. We stopped talking about it and then it happens again. And so that's been, you know, um, at least 70 years we've had that sort of cycle. How, how much power do you think there is in protest? Well, um, you know, it depends, depends when and where. Uh, without, you know, Dr. King and his cohort stepping up in the late 50s, early 60s, without Rosa Parks, people uh, sitting in, uh, boycotting, we wouldn't have had the, you know, the pioneering civil rights legislation of the, of the mid-60s, which changed so much for, uh, for Americans of all kinds. However, you know, we instituted the Voting Rights Act in 64, 65, that, uh, prevented the disenfranchisement of, of different voters. And a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court gutted a lot of that legislation. So we're sort of back where we were. Um, so we can, we can force change through protests and smart legislation. And then also a malevolent legislature can undo it. Um, so we have to be vigil, uh, vigilant and, um, and protect these freedoms because they're very precious. Of course, the Nickel Boys and the Underground Railroad both explicitly explored racism and social justice and people like me are always talking to you about these things, Colson. Uh, do you feel comfortable talking about these issues or are you the kind of man who would prefer your books to do the talking? Uh, the books are there, you know, <laughs> if, I, if I say something, I, I put it in a book. And, you know, I, I get often asked sometimes by, you know, college kids, but also grown-ups, you know, uh, does a writer have a special responsibility? And I always think it's so weird. Why would a writer have more responsibility than 
a plumber, a teacher, a, a doctor, you know, we're all in this together. So, um, uh, you know, because of the, of the subject matter of the last two books, obviously there's a opportunity opportunity or an opening to talk about police brutality and, and, and where we are. But, you know, if I was in prison, you know, thinking about the nickel boys and its exploration of inequities in the justice system, um, if someone's going to go on CNN and talk about how we can fix the criminal justice system, if I was incarcerated, I'd rather have like a sociologist or a, uh, some of legal experience than some, you know, jerky writer doesn't know anything. So there are many people who are more qualified, historians, sociologists, uh, who know much more about these topics than I do. Um, and you should probably have them on, you know, on, on your, 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 your 10 minute segment on police brutality at the end of the hour on CNN. Uh, Colson Whitehead, um, my understanding is that the idea for Harlem Shuffle has been percolating for quite a long time. Uh, you actually started writing this even before the Underground Railroad? Well, no, like in 2014, you know, sadly, that's when I had all my good ideas and I haven't had <laughs> a good idea since. But that was the year, you know, I guess we all have our years where we keep track of momentous things that happen. So that year I committed to writing the, writing the Underground Railroad. Uh, that year I came across the story of the Dozier School, which became the genesis for the Nickel Boys. And it was that year that I um, had the idea to do the heist. And, you know, um, I was sort of booked up. I was writing Underground Railroad, so I couldn't get to it. Uh, but if an idea stays with you, you know, it's an argument in its favor. Um, and I meant to write it after Underground. Um, I usually do like a, a more serious book and then a, a lighter book and switch back and forth just for my own sanity and to keep things fresh. Um, but after Trump was elected in the spring of 2017, that's when my schedule opened up and I could have either worked on the Nickel Boys, which I've been outlining, or Harlem Shuffle, which I planned to write. And the Nickel Boys just seemed more compelling. Um, in that book, there are two boys, one optimistic, the other pessimistic. Um, and I felt like through those two boys and their different philosophical worldviews, I could sort through my own feelings about where America was headed. Should I be hopeful after we elect someone like Trump? Uh, or is that sort of silly? And I should be a realist and uh, wake up to the fact that, you know, progress is so slow, it's you know practically imperceptible. So I did those two books back to back and they were, they did take a lot out of me. Um, uh, both of those books are full of tragic figures. Um, and then when I went to my notes for Harlem Shuffle, like two months after finishing Nickel Boys, I realized I had so much more material and I started writing immediately. And it was just so refreshing to get back into a, a subject matter where I could make jokes again and, you know, have a lot of fun with the, the colorful cast. People like Pepper, who's a hardened criminal who Carney meets, Freddie, um, all sorts of, you know, different types in a novel. Uh, so it was, it was a great relief to change gears and get back to humor, which is a, a big part of my project that was sort of silenced from the last few more serious books. Speaking of serious, um, I've been watching the TV adaptation of The Underground Railroad. I've been watching it slowly. Um, a lot of people I've talked to have said they can't do more than one episode in a night because the subject matter is so heavy. Um, this is directed by Barry Jenkins. How have you been involved in the project? Just in sort of informal talks, you know, we talked maybe four or five times three years ago when they were starting to write it. And I couldn't work on it because I was working on the Nickel Boys. And um, so this sort of checked in. And each time Barry, you know, proposed a solution to some pro problem and adaptation, because what you can do on the page, you can't necessarily do on the screen. He was always like, so all of his fixes were so genius uh, that I really felt secure in what he was doing. I finally saw it you know, last February, like a rough cut, and I was blown away. I mean, I can't believe he pulled it off. He assembled, like a heist, he assembled this incredible crew of actors and set designers, production designers, uh, cinematographer. Um, all these people came together to make, you know, this incredible work of art. And uh, it is stuff going. It's, you know, it's about slavery. Um, and I think uh, it's more visceral when you can see it on the screen as opposed to imagine it on the page. Um, for me, it was like two or three episodes a night. My wife was like two episodes. I could do like two or three. 
Um, and there are enough changes that I actually didn't know what was, was going to happen sometimes, um, you know, in compression and combining characters or beefing up um, some minor characters in my book. He really did. He stuck to the book, but also made these necessary changes that um, made it a novel experience for me to watch. So that must be so strange. You know, this is your story and you're watching it. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen next. Well, there's that. And also, I um, I always see people's faces when I write. You know, I know who they are, but I don't necessarily have an idea of what their faces look like. So seeing actors embody these different folks in the book was just sort of like a, a real sort of neat revelation. Someone walks in and it's like, oh, yeah, that is Cora. You know, that is Ridgway. Um, and then to have them, you know, they're talking. I'm like, oh, that's a good line. Did I write that? Like, I can't remember. It's been too, been too long, but that's pretty good. So, um you know, I've, I've done enough work that underground is kind of remote. And so being reawakened, reacquainted in this way was really lovely. Fantastic. Um, you've given yourself the lighter book to write in Harlem Shuffle. Are you ready to dive back into something a little bit more heavy now? What's next? Um, I've never actually had a sequel. I'm actually doing now the sequel to Harlem Shuffle. So oh, it's. Uh, I'm doing uh, following Carney's story in the seventies. Um, I just finished uh, the second novella. So I've done 70, 1971, 1973, and now I'm going to go to uh, the later seventies, but it's been great. I've never, you know, usually I plan a book for a few months. I write it for a year and then it's on to the next thing. And this one, I sort of knew halfway through Harlem Shuffle that I loved the world and, and Carney was such a fun character that I wanted to continue. So I handed the book to my editor and started writing the next day, the next section. Um, it is weird to write a sequel to a book that hasn't come out yet. Cause then if people are like, ah, oh, this book sucks. And I'm like, Oh, here's my sequel. <laughs> I guess, uh, that's the book you've been waiting for. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it's, it's coming out soon enough. So I'll know if it was a big folly or not. Well, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, it's called Harlem Shuffle. It's published by Fleet. Colson Whitehead, thank you so much. Sure, thank you. This is The Book Show. And if you can't get enough of hearing writers on your radio or podcast, I'd really recommend checking out the History Listen and Earshot here on RN. This month, both programs are running a series celebrating 100 years of Penn International. So already Arnold Zabel has spoken to the History Listen about how Penn has worked to protect writers and journalists from persecution here and around the world. And in upcoming episodes, you'll hear from past presidents of Penn like Margaret Atwood and John Ralston Saul as well as voices from writers who've spent time in prison for their work, Uyghur writers, writers from Myanmar, Uganda and Turkey. So this series is called You Are Not Alone, 100 Years of Pen International. It's on your radio, podcast and the ABC Listen app. Just look for the History Listen and Earshot. But right now on The Book Show, you're about to meet another debut writer who has a really timely book. It's called Here in the After and it looks at the impact of the war in Afghanistan on a former Australian soldier. It's written by Marion Frith. My book is about an unlikely friendship between two very different people. Anna is a woman in her early 60s and she's the sole survivor of a terrorist attack in Australia. Nat is much younger, he's um, in his mid-30s, and he knows, he's an Australian Army veteran. He served in Afghanistan twice. They're both very traumatised by their respective experiences. They've both got PTSD and they're both struggling to um, re-engage in life, in the life that's now around them. They form a friendship, they form a bond, and it's that friendship that... Um, ultimately gives them a way to begin to find a way back into 
back into life, really. I wanted to explore in this book both those characters for different reasons. I wanted uh, an older character, Anna is older. I wanted to have an older female character that is strong and has lived a life and for whom the wisdom of that long life proves to be a flat platform to, to perhaps recovery. And in that, I'm really interested in the concept of the aftermath of war. How do young people come back from that experience and integrate back in, into society? And so they come from very different places, but actually they share very similar experiences. I've always been really interested in trauma for reasons I probably don't understand, except having always been absorbed by the news cycle. And I think, you know, you watch the news, you listen to the news, you read it, and we get this parade of people who have experienced terrible things. I mean, we're seeing it at the moment with the Afghan refugees. And once the journalist steps away, the cameras stop rolling, I'm really interested in what happens to those people, what happens next. How do you ever get away from experience something like that to start a, to start a life, an everyday life? And on the sort of the micro um, example of that was once a while ago I was at the traffic lights here in Sydney and there was a man beside me who had clearly experienced um, some form of real trauma. His face was scarred, had very deep lacerations across one cheek. His hands were very badly scarred. He was a refugee, I presumed. And um, I remember looking at him and thinking, how, how does someone go from whatever you've been through to stand at the traffic lights, obeying this set of civic rules, buying groceries? I mean, what has that taken? So it was that internal journey that I was really interested in and that I wanted to explore in this novel. So when it came to research for Here and the After, my background is journalism and I actually took for me the decision to not go to the um, primary source, which of course is, you know, what you, what you do if you want to get a story. And on some levels that was a bit of an anathema to me, but the reason I did that, I didn't want to talk to people one-on-one, take their very, very personal stories walk away and then manipulate and distill those down into a work of fiction. I didn't want the responsibility of that and how um, disrespectful perhaps that could be. So instead I immersed myself in um, open source material, if you like. So there's a huge amount of interviews and books and video vision of people that have survived. And once I tapped into that, it was so so powerful. There's no end to it really. So I had that sort of arm's length distance, which meant I could learn what I needed to learn without risking not doing an individual's story justice. So in fact, this is an amalgamation of, of hundreds of voices, if you like, rather than taking one personal story and um, relaying that because it is a piece of fiction. one of those people that have always wanted to have written a novel. Oh, I wish I'd written a novel. And then I had this sort of light bulb moment one day of, oh, I see, if you want to write a novel, you actually have to sit down and write a novel. So I came to it perhaps later than others, but once I'd committed to myself that I actually wanted to write this novel, I'd had this story in my head for a long time. This was the story I wanted to tell more than just write a book about a subject that I had to think about. This is the story I wanted. I am. Um, I really stepped up to myself and did it and became very disciplined and very focused. It was really important to sort of 
be quiet with my characters. So to step away from the, the computer, step away from the words, step away from the din of everyday life and just be still with them. I did that by walking, you know, without any earpods, just walk and let myself be in my characters' minds. I think I'd say that. So I think I'd say read, write, um, be still and listen to your inner voice and really do it. Just sit down and do it because once you start, you don't want to stop. Do I have a recommendation of another um, debut Australian novel? Yes, I do. It's not so new now anymore, but it's absolutely fabulous. And the one that I I always come back to, my sort of role model, if you like, and my inspiration is, is Holly Ringland and her Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, which is just so beautiful. As a writer, I just found her work so inspiring and I still do it, still by my bed. All that I know is I'm breathing All I can do is keep Yes, uh, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, definitely a very popular debut. And Marion Fritz's debut, Here in the After, is published by HarperCollins. The howl of a wolf. Does it send a shiver down your spine? The question of why we are so afraid of wolves lies at the centre of Australian author Charlotte McConaughey's novel, Once There Were Wolves. This book's about Inti Flynn. She's spearheaded the reintroduction of wolves into the Scottish Highlands in an effort to repair the land. But it's the local people rather than the animals who prove to be her biggest challenge. This book follows Charlotte's other eco-fiction novel, Migrations, which came out last year. Charlotte is speaking to Sarah Lestrange. Charlotte, this book opens with this line. When we were eight, Dad cut me open from throat to stomach, which is a pretty shocking first line, but certainly got my attention. But can you explain what's actually going on here? Sure. (laughs) So this is... um Inti Flynn as a little girl um, or referring back to when she's a little girl and um, she Inti, Inti has a condition called mirror touch synesthesia which actually means that um, her brain will witness uh, somebody else's physical sensation and tell her that she's feeling that sensation in her own body so for example if Um, I have it and I see you get slapped in the face, I'll feel the sting of that slap on my own cheek. Um, And it's quite an incredible rare condition that sort of sounds a little bit like magic but is very, very real. Um, And I kind of just felt like it was a a really fascinating condition for someone, particularly a character who is in a book about empathy um, to have. Yeah, so Inti has this ability to mirror other people's feelings, means that she is very tuned in empathetically, and perhaps it's something that we could all cultivate more of. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, I think this is a pretty extreme version of empathy, um, which becomes, you know, quite dangerous for her in a way, but it's also... um, really important that she kind of is able to experience this as a a gift of connection with people. Mm. Now, as an adult Australian, Inti is in Scotland and she's part of a project to rewild the highlands of Scotland with grey wolves. That's right. And the purpose of this is to grow forests. How do wolves grow forests? Well, they're quite extraordinary creatures, actually, Um, and I didn't know a great deal about them until I started researching them for this book. But because they're an apex predator or a keystone species, it means they have trickle-down effects on every, every other living thing in their environment. So in plain terms, what they do is move along an overpopulated herbivore uh, like deer which eat all the little shoots of trees um, before they have a chance to grow and stop the forest from regenerating. Um, and the wolves come back in. So we, we talk about kind of returning the wolves to an environment where they once were 
before we killed them off and damaged that environment by doing so. So the wolves come back in, they get the deer moving, which allows all the plants to grow again. And it um, actually kind of encourages a whole lot of other animals to return to the environment. It uh, affects insects, birds, water tables. That's why we say that wolves actually do have the power to grow forests and move rivers. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And I love how you weave this information into the novel um, because it is quite seamless because it's coming through Inti and she's quite an intense character. So let's talk about your novel a bit more and delve more into the place of these wolves because there's a lot of resistance to the reintroduction of wolves to the Scottish Highlands in your book. What sort of resistance does Inti come across? Well, so she faces quite a difficult time um, in terms of the pushback from the local community because Scotland, um, as a lot of the UK is, is very heavily populated with farming. So, you know, it makes sense that farmers would be concerned about their livestock uh, with the reintroduction of a, of a, of a predator. Um, so she faces a lot of pushback from them. Um, I mean, it's based in fear, essentially, because the, the fact of the matter is that wolves don't tend to um, go after livestock. They much prefer their own prey, which is wild game. Um, I, I suppose... The issue for her is that she's quite, she's very standoffish at the start as well because she's essentially been through something that means she's lost faith in humanity and with people. Um, so when we meet her, she's got a sort of judgmental side that's just as, uh, I guess, conflict-driven as the locals are. So there's a lot of um, pretty, you know, fiery kind of head-on uh, collisions that happen when she first arrives. Um, but I guess the story is about trying to figure out how we can come together instead of um, creating di more division. Mm, she's not a great diplomat, that's for sure. And I'm just no, she's an angry person. <laughs> she's very angry, channeling some of that female rage. Um, yes. <laughs> and I'm just, I am curious where, why we as a culture are so fearful of wolves if, as you say, they don't attack flocks and from what I've read they don't even attack people very much so no. where does this fear, fear come from? I think this is a really ancient fear um, that has been around for a long time and I think a lot of it comes from mythology and fairy tales and folklore. Um, we, we, we need a monster to be frightened of I think so that we're not frightened of each other. I mean so Barry Lopez who is a um, American uh, nature writer, said that throughout the centuries we've projected onto the wolf the qualities we most despise and fear in ourselves. And I think that's something really interesting to kind of think about. Uh, wolves, I think, represent such a primal sort of sense of wildness and I think that's something that really frightens us. Um, and it, so it's it's easy to kind of vilify them when, in fact, they're incredibly shy, gentle, family-oriented creatures. And, in fact, in your book you say that Mary, Queen of Scots, went on hunting parties to rid Scotland of its wolves. Is that true? Yes, it is true. <laughs> she, yeah, she loved it. They all did. I mean, it was just a kind of worldwide slaughter that went on um, for wolves, they just there were all these um, rewards for bringing in wolf tongues, and it was really quite 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 a brutal time. Mm. Um, they were burning forests in order to smoke the wolves out, so they could kill them more easily. Just a terrible kind of um, scourge upon the earth. And as Inti says, the wolves have more to fear from us than we do from them. Yeah. Um, and you, you have this parallel going on. Well, I think you've got it going on because, you know, we've got the locals are worried for their flocks, but amongst them is Stuart. He's a man, he's really violent to his wife. So is there a parallel here um, between domestic violence and our um, degradation of the environment, our relationship with the environment and how we treat it? I think so. I really, I really do think that there is. I... 
this was one of the things that I was sort of grappling with when I was first conceiving of this book. Um, I knew that I wanted to write about the things I, I always try to write about the things I'm most passionate about. And at the time, and still now, I was very, very angry about what I could see happening around me. I was learning about this slaughter of wolves. I can I could see, you know, how we are treating the natural world, how we're treating animals, um, our environment. But at the same time, I was also seeing this uh domestic violence emergency that's happening in our country and all over the world. Um, and the two things were just really making my blood boil. And I knew that I needed to, I guess, try to write about both of them, but I didn't quite know how they fit into the same story until I, you know, started to sort of whittle it down. And, and I think it comes down to a fundamental lack of empathy. So this book to me became about empathy or, or its lack and what that does to people um, and the importance of cultivating that empathy because it is a skill that can be learned. Um, we don't have to just accept that people don't feel it. Um, they're perfectly capable of feeling it. So I, re I really do hope that's something that, you know, comes out of this novel is that sense of, I guess, reclaiming kindness and generosity and compassion and perhaps reclaiming some wildness absolutely <laughs> i totally totally agree with that so how do we do that because there's a central question here about how we rewild ourselves inti's pretty wild there's even a reference to the 1990s book women who run with the wolves um, <laughs> uh, so how do we rewild ourselves you know i'm living in suburban melbourne Oh, I know, me too. I'm in the city of Sydney and it feels very unwild a lot of the time. I think the idea for me has to do with in whatever way we are able to um, find, oh, I guess, find a sense of balance and harmony with our environment and with our ecosystem and with the creatures we share the planet with. I think, you know, wildness means balance it means being able to um harmonize perfectly with the all the other creatures in your environment and we as humans are sort of the only things that don't do that we're not at, we're not we've separated ourselves um and i think that's a really sad thing because there's so much nourishment and fulfillment that can come when we do reconnect um with those sort of wild spaces and places and, and the wildness within ourselves so your previous novel, Migrations, was about a female scientist tracking the last flock of Arctic terns. So the degradation of the natural world does seem to be a preoccupation of yours. In these books, are you trying to send a message about climate change and environmental degradation? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I never sort of set out to write um, about climate change or climate uh, write in the climate fiction genre which I'm not sure if I even think is a genre. <laughs> um, but I, I did want to write about our connection to the natural world and I found that I just couldn't, couldn't do that without also writing about our impact on the natural world, which is currently very negative. So I, I think, yeah, as well as just writing a really great story that makes people feel and want to keep reading, I think it is also important to... I guess, use, use the, the platform of a novel to perhaps maybe raise an issue that's really important for all of us right now. Um, I, I do hope that it's something that people will read about and kind of think about maybe the small things that they can do in their own lives that will make a big impact. Um, but I also hope that, I mean, the main thing I want people to take from the book is a sense of energy um, because energy kind of allows us to act, um, a sense of hope, because I don't think we can be energised unless we're hopeful, um, and, a, yeah, a sense of connection, I think. And I was curious about where you learnt about the natural world. I think it's something that I, I suppose more recently in my life I've become much more aware of. Um, I've always been... A writer, but I, as a as a sort of young person, I I wrote 
for escapism and adventure. Um, whereas I think I sort of reached a point where I started to really notice what was happening in the natural world around us and the damage that we're doing to it. Um, and so I, I think my focus uh, and interest took on quite a different form. Uh, so, yeah, look, it's hard to kind of pinpoint where it was. I mean, I grew up uh, partly with my dad down on the south coast of uh, New South Wales. He has a, he's got a beef farm down there, so I would go down and, and he's along the ocean. It's very kind of beautiful wild country down there. So I think that was always part of my makeup. Um, and I've always kind of wanted to travel in the UK and got a chance to do that a few times and just kind of loved the landscape over there and felt very uh, aesthetically connected to it. Um, so it's it's been really hard to sort of watch the degradation of it. Hmm. Well, Charlotte, I want to talk to you about your writing life because your bio says that Migrations was your first literary novel, but in fact, you've written quite a few fantasy and sci-fi novels. So how many have you actually written? <laughs> so Once the Walls will actually be my 10th published book. 10th. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you've had a lot of practice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. My older stuff is all kind of quite um, adventurous genre fiction. Um, which which actually kind of served me well as a training <laughs> tool, I think. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's good to kind of, I guess, know how a story should work structurally um, and how your plot can kind of fuel your character development. So that's, I think that's sort of what I kind of learnt from all those earlier earlier books. So, well, I, I think I, try, I always try to bring a little bit of that into my kind of adult literary fiction. Yeah, there's definite forward motion in your book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but I'm curious why the need to distinguish between literary fiction and speculative fiction. Well, I mean, that's a publishing thing. So it's not entirely my concern what genre I'm writing in. And I think you can actually kind of see that in the in my new stuff. It's quite there. They're hybrids, I think. They do kind of pull on a lot of different genres. Um, but the, the distinguishing between the genres is a way to is a way for publishers to market to the to the right audience, I think. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> I also understand that Migrations was finished a few years ago. And that explains why you've been able to bring out another novel just a year after Migrations came out. Yes. So Migrations was something that I wrote probably five years ago now but it was a long time from the start to when it was published uh, because that sort of I mean the writing process was quite slow on that one but it was also a very slow publishing experience um, so by the time I think migrations came out I was I had already finished the first draft of Once There Were Wolves. That's pretty amazing <laughs> thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you very much for having me. That's Charlotte McConaughey. Her book, Once There Were Wolves, is published by Hamish Hamilton. The other book she spoke about was her eco-fiction novel, Migrations, and that one's published by Penguin. Charlotte was speaking to Sarah Lestrange. Sarah is the wonderful producer of the book show. I'm Claire Nichols, and I'll talk to you next week. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.